1: In a secret underground market, a microbiologist has just explained her work tinkering with the genome of some microbes. And of course, one of the other members of the market who's a lot more into organic food um, has exclaimed, you know, I'm not on board with that. I think it's unnatural. The microbiologist replies, oh, nothing is natural. And then this conversation happens between two other characters immediately following that. After the sequencing session was over, I walked with Horace through the grove at the heart of the market. These are Meyer lemons, Horace said as we passed the trees, named for Frank Nicholas Meyer, Dutch by birth, but an agent of the United States government. He worked for the Department of Agriculture's Office of Seed and Plant Introduction before the First World War. I thought of him when Dr. Jaina Mitra spoke of her microbial survey. Meyer and his cohort were hunters for larger prey. They canvassed the world and sent back living samples of plants thought to be useful to the advancement of the American economy. Meyer worked in China. He sent the first soybean to America. And persimmons, any persimmon grown in this country today comes from that lineage. And, of course, there are these lemons, named for him. Meyer died in China. He drowned in the Yangtze, pushed from a riverboat. I looked at the lemon trees with newfound appreciation. Horace continued, He sent these across the Pacific, and the Spanish sent tomatoes to Italy in the 16th century, and the Portuguese, chilies to India. And maybe a comet brought it all to Earth in the first place. Who knows? Oh, I quite agree with Dr. Jaina Mitra. He plucked a lemon from a tree.
0: Robin Sloan is the author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore and the prequel novella, Ajax Penumbra, 1969. His new novel is Sourdough. Thank you for joining me, Robin.
1: Oh, it is just a pleasure to be here.
0: This is a novel with one of the most unusual characters I've ever encountered in any novel <laughs> whatsoever, which is to say a sourdough starter that comes into the possession of... W- one, Lois Clary. She's working at a startup in San Francisco. Talk about the startup where she's working and your vision of that culture.
1: Right. She's working at, a, and it's not a software startup. It's actually something focused on hardware. In fact, it makes it's a it's a company that makes robot arms for factories and laboratories and things like that. And this company, which is called General Dexterity. Which I think is a really good fictional company name, if I do say so myself. Uh, they're on a mission to end work as we know it, or at least to end repetitive labor. They think any time a human being does the same action two times in a row, that's a waste of effort, and we got to offload that to the robot arms so we can always be doing, you know, creative things and, and sort of solving new problems all the time. And you know, to me, they're both the mission and and the culture, the hard charging, sort of urgent world-changing culture of the company uh, are pretty emblematic of the world of Silicon Valley, at least as I see it. And that's to say, um, there's hubris there. There's a utopian vision that's, you know, actually appealing in some ways. There's great technical skill, but then also this sort of sense that a lot of the things that so many people in the world find a lot of pleasure in are, of course, you know, not worth doing at all. You know, that's what they would say. <laughs>
0: uh, I think that uh, I love the way that you write this book. It has a really gentle sense of humor, and the prose is really funny. Could you talk about just creating, there's a certain kind of prose atmosphere to all of your books, and that's a really interesting thing. It seems very, is it architected, or is it natural?
1: That's a great question. Um, so it's, I don't know if it's architected. It's definitely crafted, you know, or it's mm-hmm. something that, that emerges and, and hopefully gets better over the course of many drafts. The truth is, like so many other things, uh, the books, first of all, I'm happy to hear that it, the books have that um, that sense to you. or You kind of pick that up on the page. That's what I respond to in mm-hmm. the books that I love the most. Um, and it is. It's a mixture of lightness and maybe some leanness and and thoughtful prose. You know, I always want it to seem like the writer has just thought twice, at least twice about a sentence. That's all I ask. Just not the first thing that comes into your head. Um, and so just because it's what I like and what I respond to, I think naturally it's what I try to emulate and what I try to then put on the page as best I can. Uh,
0: let's talk a little bit about um, Lois. She's... Living kind of a pretty nice life, and it it strikes me that um, this book has an interesting kind of focus in it on it because it's I guess a soft focus as a novel. Some novels seem like they're like a three hundred page chase scene or action scene. This novel seems like a portmanteau. It's a suitcase with all sorts of really interesting stuff built into it.
1: Oh, man, that's great. It makes me think of the um, artwork, the famous artwork. Of course, I'm going to get it wrong probably, but I I think uh, there were these boxes made by Joseph Cornell which became known as the Cornell boxes. Please, anyone listening to this should go Google it. And if I'm wrong, you know, let us know. Um, but but that's what he made. He made these boxes that were sort of just full of, of treasures and, and full of different things to look at. And I've seen pictures of these online. And, I again, I love that feeling. You know, I love um, I love picture books, too. You know, that kind of picture books, the kind of kids' books where, like, Richard's Scary, Busy Town, and books like that where there's just tons of things to discover, little corners of the page or little details, you know, little mice hiding in their little mouse holes down along the floorboards. Who knows why I like that so much, but I always have and I still do. So yeah, again, I just you know, I think maybe some people they aim for a particular, you know, thing that they think the really world the world really needs. Or maybe they're trying to fit a certain audience or they're trying to win an award. For me, I really always am just trying to write the kind of book and create the kind of feeling that I love so much myself.
0: As Peter Sellers once memorably sa- memorably says, life's rich pageant.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. Ah, oh, the pageant. Pageants, festivals, fairs. Yeah, these are all these are all good things.
0: In this book, we referred a bit to the culture of the startup, <clears throat> but culture is a bigger theme in this book and it's explored in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. As you started writing the book, did the word culture come to you before the book came?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, no, I think it came at the same time. Um, I did, I, as I wrote the book and was grappling with what words to use where, I have to confess I fell in love with that sort of overloaded meaning mm-hmm. of culture. I mean, that is a... if a you big word. It is a... There's a lot packed I, into that. I had yeah. never
0: thought about that. And no. you know this novel, And that's what this novel is great at. It makes you think about stuff.
1: Well, and I, I actually learned this. You know, of course, you learn these fun facts and then if you can, you put them into the mouth <laughs> of a character so you can just sort of share them nerdily with your readers. But I actually learned that that meaning of culture that is um, to grow. I mean, like, so we know sort of culture like opera and art and movies and books... I think a lot of people know culture, like to culture cells or a sourdough culture, even earlier than that. And as far as I could tell, the earliest meaning, it meant to work the earth. And that's amazing to imagine that this word and this idea went all the way back from kind of like digging with a hoe up to, I don't know, J.J. Abrams making Star Wars movies in the 21st century. That's just amazing. Now... Uh.
0: Uh, Lois is working at the startup. She doesn't have a lot of time. They have a peculiar part of their culture is their peculiar culinary culture. So tell us about slurry which seems it it's a little bit familiar from another famous science fiction. Yeah, horror. it is. It is right.
1: Yeah, slurry slurry, you know, depicted in my novel as sort of a a nutri- bland nutritive gel. The idea is it just fills you up and gives you the nutrition you need. You don't have to think about it. Um, of course this is like a lot of things there's been sort of meal replacements for a long time now but but most recently they've been kind of aggressively marketed to tech workers busy oh, Googlers really? and bu- oh yeah and, oh, and busy Facebook people well they they call it Soylent that's really? actually the name I mean it's unbelievable oh. they literally have named this product it's you know a multi-million dollar startup kind of investing in this and like rolling out these products and the name they chose and stuck with is Soylent, which is so strange and so <laughs> sort of wonderfully sci-fi. Like, you can't you can't actually make this stuff up. But um, it is. We were talking before about kind of the culture of startups, for better and for worse. And there is this sense of kind of like solving every problem, sanding down every bit of friction so it's just glossy and smooth and efficient. And, you know, the promise of real-world Soylent and, and also my kind of fictional analog slurry is... You got work to do. You know, you have more important things to do than worry about lunch or make yourself a sandwich. So here, just, you know, slurp <laughs> this down. Yeah, and you're on your way.
0: Well, I liked it because it, it's a super um, science fictional feel thing. It's the food of the future that they've been prominent, you know, since the Jetsons. And you've got it lodged in the real world right now, which is this great feeling of this, you know, the kind of unevenly distributed future yeah and that's what this novel does really well is we see bits where things are really uh, accelerating faster and we know what's happening but when you actually see it on the ground as we see it in this book it's really uh, pretty exciting so talk about uh, bioengineering I mean that's you had a lot of fun with that oh
1: absolutely yeah I mean and I'm I'm fascinated by all this stuff of course I'm a consumer of all the news and and rumors and little bits of research about, about all this stuff as it emerges. And, mm-hmm. uh, and as you say, I mean, these things, I actually, in a funny way, I, I guess you could say that, uh, sourdough is, it's going to sound strange, but it, I mean, it is hard science fiction mm-hmm. in the sense that oh, yeah. I, I tried to play by the rules of like what we know is possible in the world today or the world very shortly to come. And, and, you know, in some cases maybe dial things forward a bit from where we're at now, but, but definitely not in a implausible and, and certainly not in any kind of magical way. And I do I've, – I've heard so many people talk with both, um, you know, excitement and, and trepidation, I guess, about what's going to happen with bioengineering. And this is local. I mean CRISPR, mm-hmm. this amazing new tool, this light, which is really turning into kind of just a – kind of the, your basic hammer or screwdriver of genetic tinkering – that came from the University of California at Berkeley, and and apparently it's easy to do. I mean, once you read the paper and kind of learn the protocols, as I understand it, any lab anywhere can kind of just get rolling with this CRISPR gene editing technology. And the
0: joy of cooking them, genetic engineering. It really, that's really scary is. Thought. I know.
1: Just, just read the cookbook, and you're off to the races. And um, I mean, who knows? Maybe this is one of those things that's going to just be perpetually five years into the future for... A century yet, but I kind of don't think so. I think there is something accelerating here, and I think that some of these new tools have have legitimately opened up some new territory that all of these academic biologists, but also kind of like garage tinkerers, are all rushing into right now. (laughs)
0: As Lois works, she has found a new restaurant that she goes to. And I love this restaurant. I love the people who run it. I love the the place, their, their tribe, as it were. So tell us about the Mazg.
1: The Mazg, yeah. Um, you know, I, I wanted to sort of conjure something a little bit funny. I wanted to create a culture. In, in this case, we are using the the most modern meaning, you know, a, a group of people with uh, with, you know, shared ideas and traditions and language and everything else. I wanted to create one that that was foreign to everyone, <laughs> small and weird, and kind of turned in on itself. But you know, the sign up you know above a street that that everyone walking by would go, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> um, so that's what they are. They're the they're the ultimate you know mysterious neighbor. And whether you're from Kansas or Croatia or South Korea or whatever, you look at you look at a Maz menu and you go uh I don't know what any of this is <laughs> but hopefully you're you know, hopefully you want to find out.
0: I I think that for me the uh, the aspect of secret histories and secret places, that's a really strong theme in this book and I really like that because it's not so much that these things are kept secret by virtue of some kind of conspiracy. It's just that, by virtue of the fact that most of us don't have the attention span to find them. And so there's all these little pockets. Mm-hmm. It's like there's hidden pockets within our country where we live where all of a sudden you go, oh, my gosh, this is, there's this whole food marketplace. There's this whole history of the sourdough store. There is all these things that we just don't know about.
1: Yeah, and I think in particular with food as kind of the, the key that opens that lock or that lures you in, I— did a ton of reading about the history of different cuisines, the history of eating, um, some of the history of, of different plants, different kind of crops, and, and how and, and when they were introduced to America and to other places. And it turns out that <laughs> I mean, everything we eat has a totally bizarre history. I mean, maybe there's a few things where the story is just like, yeah, it was grown here. People always ate it. Pretty cool. But that is for sure the minority. I mean, most of these stories are Bonkers. It's like people smuggling things across borders and it's all tied up with like empire and economics and you know people's dreams for themselves and their future and you know weird schemes, harebrained schemes. Um and 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 then and then you're like, oh by the way, and that is just a sweet potato. <laughs> <laughs> or or this particular kind of Pinot Noir grape or the soybean or whatever. And I just, as you say, it takes something familiar that you think you know because you see it in the grocery store all the time and it cracks it open and you see that there's a totally bizarre story and a, and a secret history waiting inside.
0: Now, one of the rabbit holes you go down is the bread baking rabbit hole. This is a, a, a rabbit hole from which I have not yet emerged. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife is hoping that I will someday <laughs> <laughs> that said so tell us about just like this kind of there is a big kind of almost baking underworld there are people who like me would call say I am a baker and this all kind one of the main um Arms of this is the King Arthur Bread Company still owned employee owned. I know. And operated. Kind That's of an amazing, amazing. company, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is. It's i I can't say that I even fully understand why baking is such a thing. I theorize that it has to do with the overlap of well, food, obviously, that it's, you know, something we all love and it's delicious and nourishing. Also, um, I think there's quite a bit of engineering to it. Mm-hmm. You know, just baking in particular seems to attract a slightly different kind of mind than Other sorts of cooking, the the almost you know the the chemistry of it and the precision Mm -hmm. and people obviously respond to that and then and then it turns out maybe this is just what gives rise to a subculture as you say the rabbit hole there always has to be like a further chamber to kind of you know drop into and I think for baking there is this whole world that opens up you move beyond that initial experience of baking in your kitchen kind of making do with your oven and like home ovens are actually not great for baking. The kind of bread that we that we love you know with the no. real thick crust it's all puffs up and it's all great um and so s- sooner or later people who really get into this they end up getting into ovens too and building an oven in their backyard or you know out of bricks and mud and I mean that's a whole other thing it's a whole other world
0: well that was very interesting to me I, and one of the things i I've, it's so great to read a book like this because as i read this i, I never realized that i've read. A, I've heard about brick ovens forever. All of us have heard about brick ovens forever. But probably very few of us, at least certainly not me, have ever thought that what does the cooking in the brick oven is the bricks, not the not I know. the fire. And I that's know. so wild. It
1: is. It's again, it's just this I think food is kind of special in this mm-hmm. regard. I think and I think it's sort of a secret weapon. I'm almost loathe <laughs> I'm almost loath to sort of reveal this to all the writers of the world. But I think it's kind of a secret weapon because everyone or almost everyone has this built-in familiarity and sort Mm -hmm. of baseline curiosity but it turns out we don't know anything about anything i mean you could you could choose it brick ovens wine apple juice beer chocolate like whatever we know what it tastes like and maybe we know that we like it and maybe we know like two interesting facts but then there's just the rabbit hole (laughs) waiting waiting is just a rabbit hole and it goes on and on and on
0: so tell us about uh, Lembus. I think this is a really what a great concept that is. I and, and this takes us to to the world of uh, the CRISPR zone.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, that was probably my most well, maybe not most, but one of the one of the sort of furthest science fictional reaches in the book. And in a way, it was me thinking through the question, okay, if Soylent and Slurry and, and those kind of things are, are actually not interesting or exciting, if they're kind of like, oh, really? That's that's your vision for the future of food? it's <laughs> the future, yeah. Yeah, then, then what is exciting? Like, what's actually interesting? And so, you know, I, I created this fictional character, Dr. Jaina Mitra, who has a vision. And her vision is not that we're going to kind of create this nutritious sludge, but rather that we're going to... Create, you know, edit, engineer these microbes that will be little architects, and they'll actually build these wonderful little, you know. I, of course, that's why I call it limbus in homage to the great waybread of uh, Tolkien's tales. That is like will keep you going on your Hobbit journey forever. Um, but in my mind, I imagine them as like little, little Queen Amans or Breton cakes or little sort of wonderful puff pastries. That's at least how they would look. And you can imagine them not being sort of baked from a disc of dough, but rather like this little culture of microbes, just like like all the workers on a cathedral, just work, you know, they they slowly rise as they kind of build the beams and the girders and the walls. And, of course, they're all, like, highly nutritious and full of fiber and, you know, all the good protein and all the things your body needs. I I mean, I would like to try one. That's one of those things where you write it and you go – I, I hope somebody makes one of these one day.
0: <laughs> Certainly not a, a huge contingent of the San Francisco food culture, however. And you write well about that. I love uh, the Merrill Market, Charlotte Clingstone. Mm-hmm. Charlotte Clingstone mm-hmm. is such a great character. Have, now, I have to ask, have you met Alice Waters?
1: <laughs> I have never met Alice Waters. And the truth is, I don't have any real deep knowledge of Alice Waters in particular, like as a, as a real person in the world, right. um, my, I, I feel like I know Chez Panisse because I've been there and wow. I've read about it. And what I really know, and I think this is actually true of a lot of people in the Bay Area, what I really know is the Chez Panisse Mafia. You know, this <laughs> group of people that kind of all got their start there at, at some point, mm-hmm. and now they've gone out and started all the other great restaurants in the Bay Area. So, I mean, I, I kind of tick through all my favorite places, my most beloved restaurants where I've ever eaten. And, I mean, truly, it's like, oh yeah, Chez Panisse alum. Uh, yep, that person worked at Chez Panisse too. Oh yeah, they washed dishes at Chez Panisse. <laughs> so I feel very intimately acquainted with that sort of the network, you know.
0: Now, uh, I have a, I will confess to having a sourdough starter sitting in my oven. Uh, it's like a big bat uh, of white whitish-gray glop. It, it bubbles occasionally. It does not do what your <laughs> starter does. Displays no
1: signs of sentience. <laughs> it
0: displays no signs of sentience. But I think you do a great job of creating a character arc. And I, I was thinking about this. All of the characters that we encounter in this book are characters that we like. I mean, there's no bad guy. There's no, there's no mustache-twiddling bad guy mm-hmm. in this book. It's it's really a propulsive read, and I think that's very, very interesting to create a book that has. There's a, a bit of conflict, but it's just it's just a sweet, charming story, not a story of two people who have to duke it out at the end.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, well, for, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, it, it's a funny thing to pull off because so much of the advice you get and the resources out there about how to, you know, construct a great story that keeps people reading. Hey. It's really all based around that that sense of, like, dire opposition. You know, they these sort of manuals ask you, you know, who is your Luke Skywalker and who is your Darth Vader or, or whatever it is. Um, or, you know, we have these movies and, and TV series where it's all just, you know, people trying to kill each other, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is fine. They're very exciting to watch. Um, but, yeah, I... I for whatever reason, I don't know why, I, I tend to write stories that kind of have a, just kind of reset at a different register and have a, a different sort of level of, of stakes, dramatic stakes, I guess. And in this case, I don't know that I quite realized this going into it, but it became clear as I was working on the novel kind of going through drafts, in a way the antagonist is, is work, or it's not the antagonist, but but really the thing, the <laughs> challenge. What people are figuring out in this book is how to do things, how to do things in the world, and and right. different people have different tasks mm-hmm. they're undertaking. Lois, you know, our our narrator and protagonist, her her task is kind of the the biggest because she's going from not knowing literally anything about food at all to trying to become a really competent and successful baker at a sort of industrial scale. But um, I don't know. I think that's that resonates with me because I think most of the struggles I've had in my life um, have had to do with work and figuring out how to do things.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're, We're we're much more likely to try to figure out how to get home from work in the afternoon than to try to figure out how to set up a confrontation with yeah. a villain. Yeah, exactly. How to exactly.
1: How to lure our arch nemesis into an alley so we can finally, you know, yeah. execute them. Right, this doesn't come up very often, it turns out.
0: <laughs> yeah, it turns out that I have not had to create a plan for bombing a giant <laughs> fortress. No. <laughs> Unlikely. I, I love the... Uh, the tech in this book is really interesting, and what's most interesting is your vision of technology is really varied. Mm-hmm. You, on one hand, we have these robotic arms, and you have some great. Um, stuff about teaching the robotic arms how to work. So let's talk about that first. Uh, sure. That's really interesting. Did you uh, consult people who were teaching uh, arms to work?
1: Oh, I've, I've followed that work really closely. I've been super fascinated by artificial intelligence and machine learning, both as they apply to things kind of on the screen, just symbols and text and words and images and things like that, and also as they get applied to, to real things in the real world, You know, cars and, and arms. For years now, um, I, I do, I, I read the papers and I, I try to follow the community pretty closely. And I think that it is genuinely really exciting. Of course, um, it's complicated and there's ways in which that technology is going to be, you know, used destructively. Um, we're going to have to figure out how to grapple with it as people that want to have jobs and, you know, figure out how to make an economy go. It's all going to be challenging. But all that said, I just personally find it really interesting and really exciting and so yeah i i mean i i think that is what comes through on the page my own deep interest and my own general enthusiasm
0: i think too that um just some of the specifics of how hard it is to do this stuff we because as humans we look at toddlers and think that toddlers are doing pretty simple things that we can do better but when we start as programmers, if you try to create an artificial toddler, you're going to find yourself <laughs> in a world of hurt. No which way. Were trying to create an artificial chess master, absolutely. which is a lot easier. A lot easier it turns hurt. out. Yeah, okay. absolutely.
1: I mean, that's, that's actually, I think the wonderful point you arrive at, the really healthy point you arrive at learning about this stuff. You get to both get excited about the the really like amazing strides that are being made with the technology, but you also, you know, inexorably arrive at a much deeper appreciation for what Human beings do what what our bodies and brains are capable of. I mean it is Yeah, like (laughs) robot arms robots are doing some interesting things now And the robot arms are much more capable now today than they were even a few years ago, but that's right the the uh, Incredible agility and planning ability of a toddler is still like way (laughs) in the future for robots (laughs) Which is pretty amazing.
0: It it is and now uh, we had talked earlier about um cultures and and civilizations and i think one of the i love agrippa and his vision of cheese as a battle that's just such a great idea you look i will never look at a wheel of cheese oh, the good. Same way oh good oh i'm glad to hear that i'm <laughs> glad to hear that yeah
1: yeah agrippa of course is the character who um becomes kind of the the consultant or the the guru for for Lois when she's having some real problems, some actually pretty pretty dire problems with her own sourdough starter, and everyone says you need to go talk to Agrippa the the cheese maker, and uh, it was, I you know that was kind of a new thing for me. I'm glad to know that you liked him. I he he is a pretty wild character, um, and I kind of went for it in those chapters, kind of giving him these these rants almost or these almost like little little oracular sermons you know oh, they about were, they were about were
0: wonderful a little like uh, screeds
1: yeah screeds and it's just all about kind of you know if there's one takeaway it's you better respect this stuff this is this is no mere snack this is a potent substance you know this uh this cheese curd <laughs> which i think is true i'm i'm generally i generally agree with uh with agrippa's point of view
0: well and it's true too when we're talking about cultures i mean the, we're now learning there's cultures within us, and I you you reference this. So this is one of the, again one of the wonderful aspects of this book, mm-hmm. is you bring up a lot of really interesting points. Um, and they're all tied together. They're part of the story and they're kind of sweet. One of the things you talk about is our microbiome and the character who's learning, who wants to learn to not only listen to his stomach acids, but talk back. Talk back, totally. He wants yeah. to have a
1: relationship, wants to have like a real a real relationship with the microbiome. I mean, that was a thing where, to tell you the truth, um, this is the peril of writing books set in our moment now, trying to kind of Mm -hmm. write a book of 2017 in 2017. Of course, I was writing it for several years beforehand. And the science kept changing so fast. Oh. I was learning all these new things because people were learning these new things about the microbiome. And at a certain point, I had to just push back from the table and say, listen, this is just, you got to put in here what you can fit and don't try to cram all this fascinating stuff in. This is a novel, not like an a mag, a, a issue of MIT technology review. <laughs> but uh, but it, I mean, it's happening fast. And we are learning like almost month by month, year by year. Some pretty amazing stuff about how how those microbiomes work.
0: Well, I this I think one of your characters even expresses a philosophy that's along the lines of uh, a person I talked to, uh, Robin Chukun, who's uh, wrote a book called uh, "Live Dirty, Eat Clean," <laughs> the premise of which is. We're too obsessed with cleanliness oh. and not enough obsessed with just eating raw stuff that we bring in off, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think this is a part of what's going on with your characters as well.
1: Yeah, I think we're. This is not a real deep idea, and it's definitely not my original idea. I'm just repeating what I've heard from others. It seems clear that we're emerging finally from sort of a century long hangover from the rise, the, the very, you know, useful <laughs> rise of public health and sanitation at following the sort of the discovery of germs and the germ theory of infectious disease and all that. And, and you know, we, we did a lot of smart things in terms of how we organize ourselves and, you know, how we sort of set up our cities and plumbing and sewage and sanitation and all of that. But yeah, then we really kept going and going and going and going and like created this kind of sterile world, which is—it's now clear—is really not great for us, actually. So finally, maybe the pendulum can swing back in the other direction a bit.
0: It's got to swing away from the direction of purell
1: everywhere. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that's right.
0: <laughs> it's a, the purell. We have reached the purell point of cleanliness. <laughs> that's, I think that will uh, be remembered in, in history. The where this is set part of where this is set is in this area between the ferry and uh, and Alameda. This is a really interesting place where the the characters say a variety of characters throughout the the action say it's not radioactive.
1: <laughs> right. Right. So, <laughs> there you go. Did, yeah, did, exactly. Did, hey, Purell doesn't work on radioactivity, so you got to just <laughs> you got to just live with it. Yeah.
0: At that point. Um That's an interesting area. Did you explore those uh, kind of no man's land? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, Alameda, the whole island of Alameda, I think, is a fascinating place, a little underrated in the whole Bay Area matrix. Um, And in particular, the Navy base, the old now decommissioned Navy base. I, um, of course, now home to many different kinds of businesses, including a lot of breweries and distilleries and things like that. I went to a party, uh, sort of a science fiction movie night. I think I think Ghostbusters was the movie that they were screening at a lab that at that time inhabited the old aircraft control tower on really? on the airstrip. And that was years ago. And it was such an unexpected invitation. And I remember I, you know, drove up and kind of parked just wherever and walked over into that once derelict now sort of re-inhabited old military structure and i thought it was the coolest thing and i think it was actually inevitable from that point that that scene would make it into something in my in my writing i mean it just was too actually magical and sort of like oh geez give me a break the bay area like of course of course here we are in the bay area
0: has anybody created for you the music of the mag mask?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, I actually, I have to confess that I ended up creating some sort of ghostly approximations myself. Um, and here's how I did it: I, in my imagination, uh-huh. when I was kind of writing about this this music um, that this this group of people um, is kind of, it's kind of part of their inheritance, and of course they play it to their sourdough to to help it grow. Um, I was thinking of a particular kind of music that's real uh, that I listened to for years. It's a kind of Croatian choral music they call Klapa, K-L-A-P-A, mm-hmm. Klapa. I love it. It's just very lovely. So whatever. That was my inspiration. And I kind of write about this other more mysterious music. Comes time to do the audiobook for Sourdough. And the audio audiobook producers these days are always kind of looking for just little extra bits and bobs to tuck in there. And so I actually trained an artificial intelligence, real simple, little neural network model on my desktop computer. Really? Uh, yeah. And I choose, it's, it's called a neural network. and And one of the things they can do, there's a lot of things they can do, but one of them is they can kind of learn patterns. And you could feed them text, you could feed them images, or you could feed them some music. And you kind of give them this challenge. You say... Extract some pattern from that. Don't just copy it. I don't want you to just play back what I played you. I want you to play back something new that you haven't actually heard before, but that on some level, some sort of more abstracted level, sort of resembles what I what I played for you. So I played a bunch of this Calapa music that I had downloaded and sort of you know collected over the years. Um, this neural network kind of sits on it and churns and trains for days, actually. It's just really like chugga 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 And then finally, what it plays, um, to my ear, is lovely. I, I think for a lot of people it's much too weird. Um, but to my ear, it's really wonderful. It's um, ghostly. It sounds like maybe a little bit like what you hear in those tracks where people like will reverse singing or kind of play little bits of human language out of order. It has that sound of like humans doing something, but it's not in any language. It's definitely – it's not Croatian. It's not anything. So – I a wow. few a few samples of that weird AI produced singing sort of singing are now in the sourdough audiobook.
0: <laughs> can we can we get some of those online? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they on your website?
1: I'll uh they're not they're not publicly posted now, but I'll um I'll send you, I'll send you some. Maybe you can maybe you can post them somewhere. Maybe you could, yeah, you, Maybe you could weave it into you could you could play a couple in the. We'll put it. In the, we'll yeah, put it into yeah, yeah. this interview. I'll send you. I'll send you, I'll send you the files. I'll send you the files. Yeah.
0: That would be great. Um. <laughs> Tell us about the the marrow Fair. This is a really interesting concept as well. It's kind of a part of the uh, secret places uh, aspect of this book.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, So it's a market. It's a great um, underground market. And, of course, there already are and have been underground markets. I've always loved the idea of sort of the night markets. Mm -hmm. These are more common in, in places outside the United States. But... Every so often, someone in, in San Francisco will kind of organize a, a night market, just a one-off or it'll run for a little while. And I, I think the feeling is lovely. It's just, it's wonderful. You know, it's kind of secret, but you're just wandering the stalls and looking at all the wonderful treats and the things that people are making. So, um, of course, I mean, I feel like this is kind of a, a through line through a lot of my work. There's, there always has to be some <laughs> secret place, you know, some, some place with a password, and you walk through the doors, and you're like, what? I didn't. How, how was has this been here the whole time? And so, of course, in this case, it was. It was uh, essentially like the great farmers' markets of the Ferry Building in San Francisco, or you know, take your pick. They're obviously they're they're all over the place, but transposed. Into this dark, sort of cavernous underground space, and of course, completely secret and and quite exclusive, at least when the story starts.
0: The uh, market has an archivist, and I love this character, and I love this idea of food history. That he talks about creating a history of the great eaters.
1: That's right. And is there one? I, that's such an interesting idea. You know, I I don't know that there's a great history of eaters or eating um there are some things that i think come close or if a person was going to sit down to do it these would be your sort of primary sources at least in english you know i think of mfk fisher this great Mm -hmm. bay area food writer as being one of the absolute great not only writers about food but sort of great literary voices Mm -hmm. about anything honestly just her voice on the page is just amazing and so that's one of the things i had in mind but but there are other books um there's one, probably the book that I per- ran across, and of course my reading was not comprehensive or exhaustive, but the book that I ran across that came closest to, to Horace's project is a book called uh, Near a Thousand Tables. And it is it purports to be kind of a global history of eating, and it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. It was one of those books where I was sort of underlining every other sentence, uh-huh. and and, and and telling myself I was going to fit them into this novel somehow, but then kind of realized that if I was to do that, I would just essentially be like, I would have recreated the same book over. And I was like, well, no, that book already exists, and it's wonderful, so I need to maybe be a little more selective here. <laughs> uh,
0: this book has some interesting aspects of the fantastic, and they're very minor, but I, I love what I like is your character's reaction. Is, is she says... It's a mess when strange events smack into the windscreen of a resolutely rational mind. And I, I like that idea because that happens to us, I think, more often than we'd prefer to believe.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I, I see it in myself, you know. Maybe there's different people with different temperaments and confronted with strange events, they leap immediately to the to the paranormal, say. Uh, that's not my instinct at all. I am a... a and perhaps perhaps to an extreme. I'm just a resolute, like, rational flattener. The weirdest thing could happen. I a voice could be booming in my apartment and it could be saying, Robin, you are being called to battle or something and I'd be like, Oh, someone must be watching Netflix downstairs. <laughs> we are I mean, but this is what we do. This is, you know, it it connects to the to the neural networks and to into and brains and, and all this kind of stuff. Um our brains are really really good at coming up with explanations for things based on what we expect based on what we know about the world pattern matching yeah absolutely i mean that's like if you had to kind of name the top two or three things that human beings are good at i think that's probably on the list it's <laughs> it, it, and it underlies so many of the other really impressive things we do so yeah um i i think that's that's probably the most uh the most realistic response to st- a strange event in your late at night in your kitchen, emanating from your sourdough starter. The first thing you don't you don't think um, my sourdough is haunted first. Maybe you think that third or fifth, but not first.
0: I was happy to see that the arms were powered by PKD motors. <laughs> I mean, there's so many that what what a, a lovely little tribute to a man who, who haunts the genre and this world, unfortunately. And the and, and, well, and the and the, and the yeah. Bay Area. You know, yeah, I think absolutely. of him as
1: I think of him as like the great Bay Area voice. I'm I'm very glad you you picked up on that. I um I do I ever since the first book, Mr. Penumber's Twenty Four Hour Bookstore, which had it had a lot of like numbers in it. Things mm-hmm. that just needed numbers. <laughs> Or, or little, th- or throwaway addresses, just sort of this that sort of miscellany, the kind of um, uh-huh. you know, just little, little, almost bits of paper floating in the story. And I made a decision early on, which has now kind of become a discipline for me, that any value, any number, any sequence of letters, it shouldn't just be arbitrary. It should be something. And even if it's not, now I have to reread this book. Yeah, I mean, there's all right. Well, I will tell you, and I, I, I should take pains to say, it's not that everyone is some great, you know mystery waiting to be uncovered Uh but they all there's something there i there's a reason that numbers are numbers and letters are letters um because why not you know it doesn't it doesn't take much to sort of sit down and say well what maybe instead of being the gq 3000 it could be the pkd what is it uh 2891 (laughs) and i'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to figure out what 2891 could be all about
0: where can I get the great flour from Davis? Is there such a flour? There
1: is. There is great flour from Davis. Oh, I'm, so, I'm actually so gratified that you asked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, midway through the book, when Lois is becoming a more serious baker, she uh, decides she needs to invest in a finer grain. And uh, so, yeah, she goes. I don't name it in the book, I don't think. But the real name of this product is called Community Grains. And uh, it's a place in Oakland, actually North Oakland, that has kind of organized the project. And they have a mill out there, and I think it's in Winters or somewhere close to Winters, mm-hmm. and they sell it online, and you can buy it in stores around, kind of, you know, the, in the East Bay, and it's fantastic. It is, I mean, it, you really can tell the difference.
0: Okay, well, <laughs> I'll have to look. It up. That's, uh, I can see what I'm doing this <laughs> as soon as this <laughs> oh, is. Oh, over. be careful! <laughs> Talk about
1: rabbit holes. It's like yet another fancy flour is a whole other world, and you can find all these new little little mills that are that are starting up again after you know so long.
0: Now, uh, one of the things I think that was interesting, too, are the kind of the way that you use uh, letters and correspondence Mm -hmm. in the novel to tell the story. And I I love Biarag. Mm
1: -hmm, Uh, He's mm -hmm. a great
0: character. Yeah. And it's an interesting, you do a great job of putting the story right in front of us. Mm -hmm. We don't exactly expect, and we don't see it as a story mm-hmm. until such time. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. what a great mm-hmm. story! So, talk about uh, the correspondence. Did it was it, Did you write it before the book, or did you write it as, in order as we read I it? I wrote it
1: fairly, fairly in order as we read it. Um, I will I'll, I'll confess something that actually that character Beareg, um who's he's of course one of the brothers that that kind of brings the the sourdough starter to Lois in the first place, and so really like kicks off the story without them no story, no, (laughs) nothing to tell here, nothing to see, move along. Um, And in the, in earlier drafts, like much earlier drafts of the book, he was very much, um, I'm not even sure how to say it. He was very much of his culture. He was almost a spokesperson for the Moz, you know, and their correspondence was Lois saying, well, you know, what does this mean? Or what do the Moz think about this? Or what's this bit of history? And he would say, and you could almost hear the kind of cheesy, fake, Eastern European accent on the page. He would say, oh, our people, you know, we are well known for the way that we whatever. And I thought about it a little more deeply. And I also got some really, really good feedback from some early readers, you know, friends and, and editors who said, that's a little cheesy and a, and a little easy. Oh, re- oh, really? He's the magical, he's the magical sort of, you know, Roma-like sort of wandering, you know, culture person who's going to help Lois get more deeply in touch with the world and with, you know, her senses. Give me a break. So I'm really happy that feedback was was sharp and and well taken, well received. Um, and I'm happy that what he turned out to be was someone who actually, just like Lois and like everyone else, it has inherited this culture, but is kind of bristling up against it a little bit. I mean, his, without giving away any spoilers, his whole thing is he thinks that his, his culture is great, but to... Um, it's not ambitious enough. Mm. He wants it to kind of explode into the world. He wants everyone to know about it. He wants everyone to eat this great cuisine. Um, and that causes some problems with his family and, you know, other people um, from his community. And so his, the emails back and forth end up being about that, about his kind of his own percolating ambition and how he deals with that.
0: Tell us how elephants' armpits come into this book. <laughs> it's such a great chapter. Donald. Yeah, elephants,
1: elephants' armpits. Yeah, you know, th- there's this thing happening, now, and this, they, this again is actually real. It's, it's, or at least based on real things that are happening. There have been a lot of great natural surveys of the world over the centuries. You know, people going all over and scraping up plants and shooting animals and hauling them back. And you know, this is actually the the origin of a lot of the natural history museums and, and things like that in their their initial collections. The newest wave of that is kind of the same idea, except instead of going after macroscopic organisms, people are looking for new microbes. And it turns out the way you look for new microbes is you just like scoop up seawater or or pond scum <laughs> or you like swab i mean it's just it's actually disgusting but wonderful like literally people go around and they swab the underside of like countertops in Wendy's in at like highway interst- interstate st- stops and and they swab elephant's armpits you know and and the insides of fishes stomachs and everything it's like this exercise in like where is the weirdest place you can imagine to stick a swab or take a little sample of you know sort of murky water because it turns out you then you then strain that and filter it and and mash it up and sequence the genes and almost without fail you find some new never before known about species of microbe and of course the hope is that one of those will have some great some great po- properties some great power that will be really interesting and useful for medicine or for who knows what
0: well, one of the things this book uh, made me think about uh, when we're talking about the cultures and, and uh, the way the lembus works is um, writing uh, the sourdough culture and bacterial cultures could themselves become a language that would write code, in a sense. Uh, I'm thinking there's an old, old Stanislaus Lem story about a guy who teaches bacteria uh, uh, Morse code. Oh, <laughs> oh
1: that's great. <laughs>
0: by, by just preventing the colonies from growing any thing other than dots and that's dashes. That's fantastic.
1: That's really fantastic.
0: <laughs> so I, I'm thinking that, you know, somewhere along here, you know, we've you're writing us such interesting stuff about Language that becomes a culture itself that writes its own
1: stories. I mean, oh, it's it, thinking about it almost. I'm just like, oh, I should. There's like five more books here. It is so. It is so rich and so deep. Um, and I think it's actually precisely that overlap of biology and computation, or whatever it is. You know, microbes and microprocessors. Um, it's it's very clear now that the two worlds are converging, in part because as I understand it, so many of the advances in biology um, have only been possible because of computer technology, mm-hmm. because of essentially being able to kind of process all this genetic data at a huge scale and kind of do it quickly. And so, and so they're already inextricably linked in that way. But just to imagine that that collision course continues and they just keep kind of smushing into one another, it is just, I mean, you could, we could talk about that for days. It is just really so interesting and so rich. Oh.
0: The new book by Robin Sloan is Sourdough. Thank you for joining me, Robin.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much.